Thank you for tuning into this sermon from New Life Student Ministries. Our goal is to inspire, equip, and support our students and families with biblically rich and God-centered teaching. These messages are meant to be supplemental and not substitutional for our weekly gathering. We hope this sermon is a blessing to you and your spiritual walk. Hey, if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter five. Mark chapter five is where we are going to be this evening. If you are joining us for the very first time this evening, let me go ahead and introduce myself. My name is Tim Shepard. I am not related to Mateo or Victor, um, and I'm the high school pastor here. So we're really excited that you're with us this evening. Um, And we are walking through a series this summer in the book of Mark. Everyone say book of Mark. Book of Mark, and the title of this series is God of Miracles. God of miracles, we hear so many stories, especially if you grew up in church, about Jesus doing all of these like unbelievable things, or we listen to the Old Testament and we, we hear all of these like dumbfounding stories, like, like God split the Red Sea and Israel walked through on dry ground, or they were in the wilderness for 40 years, and for 40 years, he provided manna from heaven, or this moment where they're very thirsty in the desert, and he literally makes water come out of a rock for them to drink. Like God does some incredible things. And some of the most incredible things that we see him do is in the life of Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, who in fact is God. And so we're kind of walking through all of these different miracles. And tonight is one that I think in some way, shape or form is going to resonate with each person in this room. Tonight, I want to talk to you about how Jesus is sovereign. Can you say that for me? Jesus is sovereign. This is a really big theological word that really we only ever use in church. Jesus is sovereign. And honestly, this is a word that we wrestle with a lot. I'm going to give you a very baseline definition. If you have a journal or if you have a phone that you're taking notes on, I want you to track with me because I don't have a a slide for this definition. Sovereignty, God's sovereignty means that God works all things. Everyone say all things. All things, it means the good, the bad, and the ugly. He works all things across all of time, for all of eternity. God works all things for two things, his glory and our good. You you with me? God works all things for his glory and our good. Now here's, here's the deal. God can never work for his glory and it not be for our good. Are you with me? He can never work for his glory. He can never be working out his will. He can never be accomplishing his plan, accomplishing anything for his glory and it not be for our good. And this is where a lot of people wrestle with the Christian faith. And I wanna lean into the topic of God's sovereignty tonight, going after one of the the most intimate miracles that I feel we are ever told in the gospel of Mark. I love reading this miracle. Every time I read this miracle, the Lord like highlights something new to me. And I love like the, like the, the physical reality of this miracle. So if you're with me, Mark chapter five, I want you to follow in your own Bible if you can, because I'm gonna ask you to kind of underline some things. If you're with me, if you don't, it'll be on the screen. Mark chapter five, verse 21, the word of the Lord says this. And when Jesus had crossed again, In the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter 
is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So Jesus is walking in this massive crowd and everybody's bumping shoulders with Jesus. The author's making very, very clear, like this is a crowded space and they're thronging about him. Let's keep reading. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard, everyone say heard. If you have a Bible, I want you to underline that word. She had heard. If you are taking notes, I want you to write down that word. It's a really profound word we can't jump over. She had heard the reports about Jesus. She came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body she was healed of her disease. I got goosebumps as I read that. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? So think about the moment here. Jesus has just got off the boat. Leader of the synagogue has come and said, hey, my daughter is about to die. She is ill. Will you come and lay hands on her? And Jesus gets up and he goes with him. And there's a massive crowd about him, thronging him left and right. Everybody touching him. Everyone wanting to see who this guy is. And there's a woman who just wants to touch his garment. She comes up behind and she touches his garment. And in the rush of getting to Jairus's house, Jesus stops, turns around, and he says, who touched my garments? Verse 31, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Can you hear the sarcasm in their voice? They're like, you've got to be kidding me. You have hundreds of people touching you right now, Jesus. Everybody is trying to get to you. Everybody is bumping into you. What do you mean, who touched you? And Jesus responds again. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, look at this, came in fear and trembling. And she fell down before him. And she told him the whole truth. In front of an entire crowd, she looked at him and said, I've had a discharge of blood for 12 years. I have not been well. I have spent my entire life savings, everything I have on physicians, and I've suffered under their hands for years, and I've, I have nothing left. And so I heard about you, the works that you've done, and I just thought, if I could just touch your garment, I would be made well. In front of an entire crowd, she tells Jesus this story. Verse 34, and Jesus said to her, daughter, Your faith has made you well. If you have a Bible, I want you to underline that statement. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to which all God's people said. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you, we love you, we love you. 
Father, I'm overwhelmed yet again when I read this text. You're such a good God. Sovereign over all things. You are the God who can take the pain, the suffering, the disease that plagues a life for 12 years and use it for your glory and our good. You're the God who can take the absolute worst and make it for the absolute best. Only you can do this. You're the God who sees every single man and every single woman in this room. You're the God who loves us, who cares for us, who desires relationship with us. And so Father, as we come before you here this evening, I pray that your presence would encounter us. Your name is in fact worthy. And when we open these words and as we read this text, we see that you are worthy. So would you come and would you teach us about how you are sovereign? Surprise us this evening in all of the right ways. In your precious and holy name, amen. There's a story in 1966 about England winning the World Cup Finals. They won the World Cup Finals. We come to the end of the game and And the captain of the team, his name was Bobby Moore. He had just finished the game and they're doing the trophy presentation and they bring out the Queen of England. The Queen of England to come and to shake his hand, to congratulate him on such an incredible match. And and so he's walking up this platform at the end of the game and he's looking at the Queen of England like the apex of royalty, the apex of authority from his country. And he's just like sweat. He's just got himself dirty. He's just bled for this game. And he gets the game and he goes up and he shakes her hand. And after the game, when he was being interviewed about this moment, like you got to shake the Queen of England's hand, like what was going through your mind? He stated to the reporter that I was terrified. I was terrified, I had trepidation. And and the reporter goes, why? And he says, as I was walking up, the stairs, I looked at her and she had these like pristine, perfectly white gloves that were not dirty at all. And I looked down at my hands and they were dirty and disgusting from the game. And so as I was walking up the stairs, I was doing the best I could to wipe the dirt off on my shorts before I shook her hand. I think this is a really good picture of what it looks like for many of us to come to Jesus. Have you ever heard of this idea of shame before? Like being embarrassed for the dirt that you got on your life? Being embarrassed and, and, and wanting, wanting the world to not see you for who you truly are, you for your brokenness, you for your frailty, you for your humanity, Right, we have shame for a lot of reasons. We have shame because we all fail. We're sinful, broken people. We make decisions that we know aren't right. We make decisions that we know we could do better and yet they're decisions that we've made and if we could go back and change the past, we would go back and change the past, but we do not have that power power nor that authority. So we have to realize that like we're just broken, frail people or 
you have shame because you have a hard time realizing that you're a human being and you have limitations. You wish you could be the person that meets all of the needs. You wish that you could live up to the expectations that you have on yourself or that others have on you. You might live in shame because you live in constant disappointment of feeling like you fall short of what, who your parents want you to be. You might live in shame because you're living a life that you know you don't desire to live, but like all of a sudden those words that, that Paul writes where he says, the very thing that I don't wanna do, I do. And the very thing I do is the thing that I don't wanna do. You're like, yeah, that's me. And you're filled with shame and you're terrified. You're terrified like Bobby Moore walking up those steps going to meet the Queen of England that you're about to make dirty what is clean and perfect. And this is what makes the Christian gospel hard for you. It's what makes it hard for me is what would perfection and why would perfection want to have anything to do with imperfection? Why would wholeness want to have anything to do with brokenness, right? Like, why would holiness want to have anything to do with that which is sinful? And so what this often does for most people is it discourages them from our faith. But if you were to take a step back, you were to read this book, and even as we read this story, you actually come to find that if you're someone in here who deals with shame, if you wrestle with shame, if your thoughts, your mind, your life is saturated with shame, like if you are plagued by shame, then I have good news for you. You are in good company if you are a follower of Jesus. You are in good company if you are the people of God. If we rewind the clock all the way back to Genesis 3, we see shame at its finest. I mean, God had made everything perfect for Adam and Eve, like everything was good in the garden. They, they could do all that was like good for them. They could eat from any tree except one. I mean, it's like the one command God gave you is like be fruitful and multiply. It's like spend your life having sex and, and making kids. Sounds like a great life. I, I appreciate that, amen, right? <laughs> like, like, right, I mean, could you imagine like God makes you as a man? And then he's like, you know what? It's not good that you're alone. Let me make you a woman. And like, I mean, like, you, do you realize like the, the translation for woman in the Hebrew is literally mine. Like think about what Adam was doing. He's little, God's like, I want you to name all of the animals. And he's like, okay, dog, cat, bird, bear, moose, looks at a woman, mine. <laughs> like that's his logic. He's like, yeah, 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 mine. I mean, like life was good. It was perfect, like clean white gloves. Like what could go wrong? One command that God had given them, do not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And everything goes south in Genesis three. They eat of this fruit. You know what they do? They begin to run. They get terrified and afraid like Bobby Moore walking up those steps, terrified and afraid because they know that they've done something wrong. They begin to abide in their shame. There's this story of David and Bathsheba in the Old Testament. I mean, David, 
I mean, this is the guy who killed Goliath. This is the guy who slapped a lion in a bear. Like this is the guy who like delivered like, like, like the, the, the Israelites from the Philistines. I mean, he like, he, he's an absolute savage with Goliath, like literally destroys this guy, cuts off his head as a teenage boy, is, is labeled a man after God's own heart. And as king, as anointed king, he's walking on the roof as his men are out at war where he should be. And he looks down from his roof and he sees a woman bathing. He gives into his temptation. He gives into the lust. He brings this woman into his house and he gets her pregnant. And so what does he do with his shame? He tries to cover it up. He literally murders her husband and then just brings her to his house to be his wife. Fast forward to the New Testament. You have a woman walking to a well in John 4 at noon to get water. And this is so weird as you read this text. If you're a Jew reading this text, like this doesn't make sense. You don't get your water in the middle of the day. That's the heat of the day. Like everybody knows, like the women of the house, they go out in the morning, 6 a.m. in the cool of the day to get their water. But she knows who she is. She's had five husbands. She knows her place in society. She knows she's an outcast. She knows that she is not worthy to be in the presence of other Jewish women. She knows that her life is one to be on the outskirts. So she goes to get her water at noon in the heat of the day. And what does she find when she gets to this well? The son of God. What's he doing? She's, she's trying to hide in her shame. She doesn't want him to know why she's there. She doesn't want him to know what's going on. It takes Jesus' sovereignty, his all-knowing reality to, to look at her and go, I know you've had five husbands. I know why you're here at noon. I mean, Pastor John, he just talked to us about John 21, like the story of Peter. Like, like, like Jesus' best friend, one of his, I mean, on this rock, this rock, you're gonna build the church of God? Like this guy? This guy who in the face of persecution, in the face of fear, in the face of death is gonna go three times, I don't know that dude. Uh-uh, I have no clue who he is. I have no affiliation with him. I know that he's the God who like saved my career and showed me that like he can fill my boat with fish. I know that this is the God who can, who can like take a man's withered hand and make it full of life right in front of me. I know that this is the God who has the ability to like part the Red Sea. I know that this is the God who has the ability to like heal a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. But when push comes to shove and my reputation's on the line, I don't wanna be associated with him. I need you to hear me. You are in good company before Jesus if you wrestle with shame. Whatever's happening in your life right now, whatever brokenness, frailty, limitation that you are working so hard to try and hide, I have good news for you that's terrifying. Jesus knows exactly where you are sitting here this evening. He's the type of God who in the middle of a crowd who is thronging him left and right can turn around and go, who touched my garments? He knows. He knows who you are. 
And I wanna, I wanna, I wanna tackle a little bit tonight. Like we can talk about like the beautiful miracle of this woman's like disease being healed. But the real beauty of this miracle is that God liberated a woman of her shame in Mark 5. And here's good news. God can work that same miracle here this evening and liberate you of shame. Why? Because he knows exactly where you are right now. He sees exactly where you are right now. He is not foreign to shame. He's not a stranger to it. He knows it and he knows it well. And so here's the thing. I think, I think in order for us to like understand the weight of God taking care of our shame, we need to break down like the weight of what shame really is. Like what does it do for us? What are like, for lack of better words, what are the functions of shame? If you're taking notes, I want you to write these down. What are the functions of shame? Function number one is shame produces doubt and fear. Shame produces doubt and fear. And, and let me be specific. Shame produces doubt in the promises of God and it produces fear in the character of God. It produces doubt in the promises of God and fear in the character of God. Like, like think about like Adam and Eve, right? Like all of a sudden, like you're, you're, you're with God. Everything is perfect. Everything is going good. They fall short. They, they do exactly what God has told them not to do. And all of a sudden, they're afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid. See, here's the thing. This isn't the type of fear in God's character that the psalmist talks about, where he says, like, like those who deem to be wise should fear the Lord. It's not that type of fear. That type of fear is a, you have an awe, a respect, a reverence for who God is. This type of fear is you begin to have a suspicion that God's not good. Are you with me? You fall short. You do something that you know you shouldn't have. You, you failed an expectation. You, you failed to live up to who you felt God was asking you to be. And all of a sudden, you have a picture of a God who's mad at you. All of a sudden, you believe that this God has, wants nothing to do with you. Why would he? Why would he want to invite someone into his family that would screw up yet again? Why would he want to invite someone into his family who's this dirty, who's that gross? Why would he want to invite somebody into his family who has that little faith? Why would he want to invite someone into his family who, who on the surface he's given everything they have no excuse, and yet still choose what's lesser. Why would he, why, why would he want that? You, and all of a sudden, God's not good. He's angry. He's full of wrath. And all of a sudden, like these promises, these, these promises like God's gonna work all things for the good of those who love him, that can't be the case. That can't be the case. Then, then all of a sudden, you start getting critical of the world around you. You, you start resting in your own shame. And so you start looking at the world around you. You start, you start seeing everything go south in the world around you. You, see, you start seeing Russia invade the Ukraine and, and you start seeing like all of these things begin to break down in society. And you, you begin to go, how could a good God be over all of this? Where is he at? And you begin to doubt and fear 
who this God could possibly be. And what that begins to do for you is it gives you permission to distance yourself, right? Gives you permission to put a stiff arm between you and this God who won't hold his promises, who won't keep his promises, and a stiff arm from this God who is not good, but he's full of wrath, he's full of anger, he's just seeking justice and he can't stand you. And then this pushes you into the second function of shame, which is this, it compels you to hide. You wanna hide in you. So you don't wanna be known for that shame. You don't want God to see you that broken, let alone like the world see you that broken. So you do what Adam and Eve did. They jump behind the bushes when they hear their God walking through the garden. You do what, you do what David did. You, do, or you, you, you try to just murder off the situation, try to take care of it so no one will know, right? You try to do what Peter did. Why don't you just go start fishing again? Never mind what God has asked you to do. Never mind the things you know he's called you to. Never mind obedience. Just go back to what you know. You do what this woman attempted to do. She tried to like somewhat get close to Jesus without Jesus knowing she was there. She put herself under the guise of an intense crowd. It compels us to hide. You know why? because we don't like our weakness being shouted from the rooftops. You want proof? Open up Facebook or Instagram, right? Nobody posts about their weakness. Nobody posts like, I got an F today in geometry. Nobody wants to post about that. Like nobody, nobody wants to post about their breakup, right? It's like, you wanna post that we together, but we'll just let the world figure out when we're part right? Like all you got to do is open up social media. It's like, we, we want to be known for what we're good at. We want to be seen for what we're good at. We don't want to be known for our limitations. We don't want to be known for our brokenness. We don't want to be known for our frailty. So you know what we do? In our shame, we hide. And hear me, we have some great hiders in this room. I'm one of them. We know how to hide really, really well. You know, you know how like you, you get really good at putting on a face, like everything's okay, I'm good. Don't worry about me, my family's fine. We got really great hiders in this room. We got, we got people who love to hide behind religion. We got people who love to hide behind good works. We got people who love to hide behind their really loud mouth. We're good at hiding. We get really, really good at, why? Because this is what shame does. Isolates us. It pulls our proximity to God further and further and further away. And then this is what it ultimately does, the function of shame, is it encourages our pride encourages our pride. We begin to live once you've been here for a while and after you've doubted the suspicion or doubted God's promises and feared God's character and bought into that lie that he can't be good, the suspicion can't be good. You know what we begin to do is the only God out here can be yourself. The only person who's Lord out here 
is yourself. No one can tell you how to live your life out here. This is where our culture gets that you do you philosophy, that live your own truth philosophy. Life is just better when everybody's their own God, right? Life is just better when we can all determine what's best for our lives, right? Right? It encourages our pride. And then here's what happens. We become to be, we get so uncomfortable with us living in our own pride that the only way we can get comfortable is if we encourage others to do it. We have to ask everybody else. The only way I can feel comfortable to live my own truth and not submit myself to a God is if you'll do it too. So let's just all abide and live with the reality and the truth that we can be our own gods. This is what shame does. It begins to deteriorate like our lives. It begins to, like this is what the nature of sin does. And I have good news for you. Jesus is greater than your shame. Jesus is greater than your shame. I want you to think now of the story of this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Can I give you some context for this moment? At this moment in time, at this period in history, if you are a woman with a disease like this, you are what the Jews would declare as ceremonially unclean. You do not have the right to touch a man if you're bleeding. You don't have the right to be in the proximity of a teacher, a rabbi. And here's what we do know. Like, like think about like how intentional Mark was in writing this account. Jesus got off the boat and who was he met right when he got, met, met by right when he got off the boat? A man named Jairus. Who is Jairus? He's the leader of the synagogue. So it's not just that this woman has no business being near Jesus. He's making really clear to us that she's, she is working herself through a crowd by which she would have been absolutely disdained. She's got no right. No right coming near Jesus. No right being in this crowd anywhere near him. And she knows. But I want you to pay attention to something. How does she know? What has compelled her just to touch the garment of Jesus? Has she watched this man? Like, has, did, did she get to like observe him healing the man with the withered hand? Did she get to, did she get to like observe Jesus like saying, peace, be still? to the wind and the waves? Did she get to observe like, like four friends lowering a paralytic into the house before Jesus? That's not what the account tells us. You know how she knew about Jesus' miracles and Jesus' power? That one little word I had you highlight in your book, your good book. It says not that she saw, not that she observed, not that she had seen, it said that she had You know what Paul says in Romans 10, 17? He says, faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. So I need to give you, I need to give you great hope tonight. If you're sitting here and you're going, I've never watched this Jesus do a miraculous sign or wonder. I've never, never seen it. 
I've never seen him heal somebody with a withered hand. I've never seen him raise somebody from the dead. I've never seen him take somebody who is sick and make them well. I've never seen him take somebody with a broken limb or, or a hurt, like a torn Achilles or anything like that and make go, oh, I've never seen it. Hear me, you don't need to see it to have faith. All you need to do is read 13 verses to have the faith to know that Jesus is sovereign over all things. Are you with me? Faith comes. This is why the Holy Spirit inspired a book. Wouldn't it have been so awesome if he just gave us a movie? Right? Like what if he just like gave us like that divine like cinema to go, oh, that's how you did it, God. Oh, okay, now I can believe you. Now, now, now I can see, like, now I can see, I can see, I see, I can see, I can see that you are, are, are sovereign over disease. I can see that you called the wind and the waves. He's going, no, you can come, you come to faith, not by seeing, by hearing, by hearing, hearing of the word of God. Shut your eyes and use your ears and watch faith rise in your soul. Like, like faith comes by hearing. She heard, she heard these testimonies. She's, she's on the outskirts of society. She's, she's living out here by herself, suffering from her pain. And she's beginning to hear of this man who is not, who's not afraid of lepers. She hears of this man who's willing to go touch a leper. And, and, and show him that his will is for him to be clean. She begins to hear about this man who's standing on a boat, who's standing on the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and everybody's about to die, and he's just like sleeping. He's sleeping. Like he's got sleeping pills. Like he's sleeping. And all of a sudden, like it takes, it takes not a storm. It doesn't take waves. It takes his followers shaking him awake. And saying, don't you care we're about to die? She heard, she heard about a man paralyzed from the neck down, couldn't walk. A roof opening up and four friends lowering this man down in front of this man named Jesus. And she heard that he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Take up your bed and walk. She heard, hear me, that was enough for her in faith to work her way through a crowd, to get past every status quo, to get past every level of discrimination, to get past every form of obstacle, just to touch the hem of his garment. That was enough just by hearing. I wanna show you what faith does. We just saw what shame does, but faith, <laughs> faith instead of producing doubt and fears, it gives confidence and hope. I mean, look at the shift in this woman. Just by hearing what this man Jesus would do, she gets up and she begins to work her way towards this man. Nothing's gonna stop her from touching the hem of his garment, nothing. All of a sudden, there's something about this man. There's something about this man Jesus that despite what's going on in my life, I just gotta get close to him. Confidence and hope. Though she had met with physicians for 12 years, 12 years, and the word says she suffered under the hands of those physicians for 12 years, she found a new hope. 
she found, she found something that just might have the ability to heal her of her ailment. Faith gives confidence and hope. It doesn't give doubt or fears. Number two is faith compels confession and repentance as opposed to hiding. Let me give you kind of a radical statement. Let's put this up on the screen. Next slide, Mr. Andre. Whenever we go to Jesus for help, we will both give to him and get from him far more than we ever bargained for. In faith, whenever you come running to Jesus, whenever you go after this man named Jesus, like you have an idea in your head of what he's gonna do for you. You have an idea in your head of like the chains and the shame that you're dealing with. You think you know. You see what she wanted, all she wanted was for her, her, her discharge of blood, this ailment for 12 years to be gone. That's, that's all she wanted. When Jairus came to, to get Jesus, all he wanted from Jesus was Jesus just to heal his 12-year-old little girl of her ailment, right? Like, like but what happened? What happened when they came to Jesus? Let's start with Jairus. You continue reading in Mark 5. A servant of the house comes right here in this moment and he, he tells Jairus, your daughter's dead. She's no longer breathing. Don't bother the man anymore. And Jairus looks at Jesus and Jesus looks right back at him and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. Just believe. See, what, what Jairus came to Jesus for was the healing of an ailment. But if you keep reading Mark 5, you know what he got? The resurrection of his daughter. She came from death to life. Death to life. Like, like, like we think, we think like what we're bringing to Jesus is like this chain. Like this is how big it is. This is the weight of it. And when we come to Jesus, we, we, we begin to see like, wait a minute, what he's asking of me is more than this. Is more than just my cush life. Is more than just like my Wednesday worship. More than just like my spiritual disciplines. No, he wants that nasty part of you that you don't want anybody to see. He doesn't just want like the simple parts of you. He wants more. He wants your bondage. He wants your brokenness. He wants all of you. And you begin to think like, I'm going to Jesus to give him, to give him something. And he looks at you when you make it to him and he goes, no, no, no. I don't want something. I want everything. And when you go to Jesus, he's not going to just say, okay, your life's gonna be easy, good, and Christian now. You're called to a life of confession and repentance. It's costly, it's hard. You know the best way to beat shame? It's so tough. Confession and repentance. But we don't like this. We don't like, we don't like people to see our brokenness. 
To confess and to repent means that one, I gotta acknowledge that I'm in the wrong and then I gotta make known that I was the one in the wrong. We have a really, really hard time with that. I wanna invite the band to go ahead and come back up. We gotta admit we're the ones in the wrong. So we think like, okay, the life you're inviting me into, it's not just like giving me confidence and hope again. You're asking me to like confession and repentance. You're inviting me to a life that is costly. He asks you to give more than what you wanted to give. But here's the good news. The woman, she came to him and what she wanted was healing for her discharge of blood. And what did Jesus make her do? He turns around knowing that she's been caught in front of everybody. She has to state her whole story. She's gotta say, I've been suffering with a discharge of blood for 12 years. She's gotta say, I've broken every ceremonial law. I'm unclean. All of you who touched me as I was walking up, up here, you're unclean. I'm unclean, but I just wanted to be healed. What does Jesus do? He looks at her and he says, daughter, touching my garment has made you well. No, that's not what he says. What does he say? You're your 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 faith has made you well. You see, Jesus delights in taking your shame and making it a showcase for his grace. This woman was not healed for her touching of his garment. This woman was healed because of her faith. She believed that there was something about this Jesus. Something about this Jesus that wouldn't keep her away. So she was compelled to stand before a crowd and confess. Say, this is what the Lord has done for me. But you see, our gospel doesn't just end with that. Faith does much more. Does so much more. So much more. It produces humility. She was not made well on her own understanding. She was not made well in her own strength. She was not made well with her own talents. She couldn't even boast in like what she did. I want you to catch the real gift that Jesus gave in this miracle. It wasn't the healing of her disease. The greatest gift God gives us is not any gift of healing at all. The greatest gift God gives us is himself. Himself.
himself. Himself. Think, think about how this miracle points to the cross. Jesus walking through a crowd and he feels something. What is it that he feels? Mark tells us, he says, he felt power go out from him. Like power, his strength, it left him. In other words, Christ was made weak so that she could be made strong. Is that not the story of the cross? That Christ, like he, as Paul says, who knew no sin, would become sin on our behalf, why? So that we could become the righteousness of God. In other words, he becomes toxic so that we can have a precious fragrance. He dies so that we might live. Jesus doesn't just swipe your shame to the side. He doesn't just take it and put it over there. He puts it upon himself. He takes it upon himself. And you know what he does with it? He bears the wrath of God. for you and for me, why? So that instead of hiding, instead of doubting, instead of fearing, instead of being our own God, we could find a way, a truth, and a life that is far better. Will you stand with me? There are some in here. There are some in here whose chains, your shame, it feels like this. And I got news for you. The longer you try to bear your shame on your own, the heavier it gets. The heavier it gets. The heavier it gets. But remember, Jesus loves to take shame and make it a showcase for his grace. There is nothing you have done, no identity that you have assumed, no pain that you are bearing that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel at its finest. So this is what I wanna do. We're gonna sing this song. How good is he? You know, what a, you, know what, you know what a song like this does? Like we talk about singing into belief. What we're doing is we're setting aside the doubt and the fear and we're entering into confidence and hope again. We're confessing that his character is far beyond what we could ask or imagine. And his character will always work for his glory and our good. So can you bow your heads? Scott, could you bring down the lights? As we go into the song, I wanna invite you simply just to release your shame at the foot of the cross. Give it to the Lord.
give him that weight. Come running after him. Let nothing stop you at getting to him. And, and when that little voice creeps up and go, why would you do that? Why would you go running after this God? You can make it really simple because I heard, I heard, I heard a story of a man who's willing to get off his heavenly throne and come running after me to take my shame, like to take my filthy rags and give me a robe of righteousness. You heard a story about a man who will take what was old and make it new, who, take what, who takes what is broken and makes it whole, who takes what is sick and makes it well, who takes what is dead and gives it life. So Lord, we come to you. I wanna, I'm gonna be a little different tonight. I wanna invite you to come forward. Come forward, don't go out, come forward. I think everything in us, like in a moment like this, when we talk about shame, is like, let me go find my space in the room. Let me, let me go like get my, get my, and it's like, like, this story inspires great courage. Bring it in, bring it in, bring it in, come on. People all the way back here, all the way back here moving in. Like, like you hear the story and it's like, we're gonna just stop at nothing. Stop at nothing in light of our shame touch the hem of his garment. And I think when you, come on, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. When we can have a moment like this where we like go, oh, our God is good. Together, we can hear. And we can let another's faith become our faith. We can have hope and confidence again that this is the God who takes our shame. So, I want you to open your hands. And if you have the faith to pray it as we sing this song, I just want you to say, Lord, I give my shame to you. I give my shame to you. It is yours. It is yours. You are worth it. You are worth it. I give my shame to you. Give me the faith to not doubt or fear your character, your promises. And the only logical prayer to say after that is just, God, I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you. Like the woman who's like, I know. I've tried everything else, everything else to deal with the shame. I just need him. At this point, all you need is him. Say, I need you. And in light of that, let's worship, brothers and sisters. Thanks again for listening to this message from New Life Student Ministries. If you want to keep up with what's happening with us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NL Student Ministries.